Good morning, College Park Church. Hope that you guys are doing well. Happy Father's Day today, and uh, we are so excited to launch into a new uh, sermon series starting today that will uh, take us through the next uh, seven weeks together. Uh, this sermon series is called uh, Come to Jesus, and, uh, and we'll start in John uh, chapter 3 here this morning. I want to uh, draw your attention to a couple of resources that we're going to be giving you today. Uh, the first one is uh, kind of a, a, a discussion guide that will help make what we talk about on Sunday mornings more practical and will help you kind of live out uh, some of the things that we talk about on a regular basis on Sunday morning throughout uh, this this sermon series. So you can grab uh, that discussion guide out on the table outside this room and to the left. There's kind of that table right there. There are several of those uh, guides that you can uh, just take and use. Uh, So small group leaders, if you're uh, meeting this summer, you can uh, take that and go through it throughout the summer. Uh, if your small group is taking a break or you're not in a small group and uh, you're looking to uh, study something this summer, it'd be a great resource for you and the Lord or you and a, a spouse or a friend or someone that you're discipling uh, to go through. So just want to uh, encourage you to, to take that on uh, your way out today. So let's pray and then we'll jump into uh, the text. God, we thank you for uh, today, Lord, we thank you uh, that Father's Day reminds us that you and you alone are the only perfect Father. Lord, I I know that some are here today who uh, today is not so much a day filled with joy, but uh, it's filled with sadness, disappointment, some who desire to be fathers and yet aren't, or some who are fathers and yet have a lot of regrets in how they have parented, maybe some of us who have Uh, relationships with our fathers that are strained. And so, God, I pray uh, on a day that is filled with all kinds of mixed emotions, God, that you would be our rock, or that you would unleash your grace and your mercy even this morning as we figure out how to process today. And God, I pray as we turn to your word, Lord, that you would, by your spirit, make this word come alive in our hearts. God, we don't want this just to be a, a motivational talk or a pep talk about spiritual things. We we want to have a, an, an encounter with you, the living God. And so, Lord, have your spirit roam free in this room and use your word for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what comes into your mind when you hear the word evangelism? What kinds of, of thoughts or emotions kind of flood uh, your mind when you hear uh, kind of that uh, that, that word evangelism. That maybe for some of us, the, the first feeling that you're filled with is guilt. Because you think to yourself, well, good Christians share the gospel consistently, and I don't share the gospel consistently, so I, I, I feel guilty because of that. Maybe uh, when you hear the word evangelism, you might be filled with fear. You might be filled with fear because uh, the whole idea of talking to someone that you may or may not know well about how to be saved is, is something that's outside of your skill set. Maybe you don't know how to do that. Maybe you don't know what to say. What if they ask you a question that you don't know how to answer? So you, you, you're filled with fear. Maybe you're filled with anxiety. Maybe the whole thought of, of evangelism, you have one particular method of evangelism and that doesn't necessarily uh, go with your, uh, your personality or how you're wired. And so you're, you're filled with, with anxiety thinking about talking to somebody that you don't know about the gospel. May, maybe you're filled with indifference. Maybe you think to yourself, you know, I, that, that's just optional as a follower of Jesus, that, 
that evangelism is kind of reserved for the super-Christians. That's their job, and that's not really something that I should participate in. I think our feelings and our thoughts associated with evangelism is largely shaped by our own experience of evangelism. I know for me personally, when I think about the word evangelism, my mind goes to this street preacher who would stand on a box uh, on the street corner in downtown Cincinnati, Ohio, and, and he'd be waving his, his Bible back and forth, yelling into a megaphone, uh, and he, he wore kind of this shirt that said, believe or burn on it. And, uh, and so whenever I, I think of evangelism, I think of this, this kind of short, stocky man who, you know, as we're going to the Cincinnati Reds baseball game, you have to pass him. Like, so thousands of people are, are watching this guy, you know, yell things about repentance and hell and fire. And, and like, that's what I think about when I think about uh, evangelism, because that's part of my own personal uh, experience. So for me, I think of a street preacher. Maybe for you, you might think of like the, the four spiritual laws and kind of going door by door or, or maybe walking up to complete strangers uh, at the mall and asking them the question, hey, if you die tonight, which is pretty creepy to walk up to a complete stranger, but if you die tonight, where, where would you go? And they kind of frantically like walk away because it's too uncomfortable. But what, what comes to your mind when you think about evangelism? See, there are all kinds of reasons why only 39% of Christians have shared the gospel with an unbeliever in the last 6 to 12 months. There are all kinds of reasons for that. Now, I, I think one of the most popular reasons for that is because of, of our negative emotions and thoughts associated with evangelism. That evangelism, for some reason, ha, has become kind of this, this nasty word in, in our minds and in our hearts. So therefore, we're not going to engage in evangelism consistently. And so my question for us this morning is how do we move from thinking about evangelism in, in a negative experience to thinking about it in a positive experience, to, to more of a life-giving encounter? How do we move from thinking about evangelism as if you're the salesperson and you're sitting across the table from the person you're evangelizing and you're there to kind of seal the deal? And you want that person to say yes, to, to you know, write their name on the dotted line. And you're going to do anything that it takes to, to kind of manipulate maybe the gospel in order for them to, to believe. How do we move from thinking about evangelism in that way to thinking about it as you're a beggar sharing with another beggar where to find food and food that will satisfy their souls forever and ever? How do we move from it being just this formal, cold presentation to an intentional, engaging, life-giving conversation. Well, that's the hope of this sermon series. That over the next seven weeks, we're going to look at a variety of people that Jesus interacted with. And, and one of my hopes uh, for this sermon series is that we would just look at, at each of these seven conversations that Jesus has and that we would learn how it is that Jesus both embodied grace and yet conviction. Where Jesus both was was confrontational. He, he did not shy around some of the hard truths, and yet he was compassionate and full of grace. I, I want us to, to learn what, what does that actually look like, and also to be inspired by Jesus. That as we look at these different encounters, and we're going to look at, at all kinds of people all over the map, people that you and I interact with on a regular basis, and I want us to walk away from each of these conversations thinking to ourselves, I can do that. 
That is something that I can do. That is life-giving because Jesus, honestly, is too good to keep to ourselves. He's too beautiful. He's too life-changing to keep to just me. I want to share that with other people, and now I feel equipped to being able to do that. That's part of my hope for uh, this sermon series, that you're not driven by guilt, but you're driven by a love for Jesus, and you talk about that which you love. So before we jump into our passage this morning, since we'll be talking a lot about evangelism over the next couple of weeks and couple of months, I wanted to throw up there just a, a definition of what evangelism is. So evangelism, I think, is sharing the gospel of Jesus with the aim to persuade. The aim to, so evangelism is not just inviting someone to church. Well, that might be part of maybe your strategy, but that's not evangelism. Evangelism is not just telling somebody that you're a Christian, although that might be good, a good thing to do. Evangelism is not just saying, I'll pray for you. But evangelism is making clear the life and death of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for us in the gospel with the aim to persuade. That it's not just this, hey, this is something good for you to know about, but you're actually calling that person to believe in Jesus and to follow Jesus. That, that's, when I talk about evangelism, that's what I am after throughout, <clears throat> throughout this sermon series. And so let's look at perhaps maybe our first case study this morning in John chapter 3 about how Jesus did this. Now there are four things that I want to highlight throughout uh, the rest of our morning together today uh, from verses 1 through 17. So the first one is I want us to look at a religious seeker in verses 1 and 2. We'll be looking a little bit about uh, who Nicodemus was uh, and what he believed. And then number two, we'll look at Jesus' direct invitation in verses 3 through 8. And then we'll look at the specific barrier of unbelief that Nicodemus had in verses 9 through 15. And then we'll close with the gospel hope in verses 16 and 17. All right, so let's look at number one, a religious seeker. In these first two verses, we learn a lot about Nicodemus that is very helpful for us as we make sense of what it means to, uh, to engage in evangelism. That as we're introduced in verse 1 to Nicodemus, we learn a couple things. First, he's a man. Number two, he's a Pharisee. But also, he's a ruler of the Jews. So we know some, some things about Nicodemus, that he was a Pharisee, which, which meant he was part of the religious rulers of the Jewish people. But the Pharisees, unlike the Sadducees, lean towards more religion than politics. But the Pharisees had a high view of God's word, that they believed and they thought and talked a lot about the afterlife, which, which I think is driving Nicodemus to pursuing Jesus. He's, he's wanting to learn more about eternal life and what that is all about. But the fact that Nicodemus is described as a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, but also in verse 10, Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel. So this guy is, is kind of a stud. I mean, he's, he's known for being the teacher of Israel. He was a mastery teacher of the Old Testament. He was well-respected. He knew a lot about uh, the Old Testament and taught it well. He was very religious. And yet, as we look to verse 2, he was unsettled. You read verse 2 here. It says, this man came to Jesus by night. Now, there are a couple different reasons why John 
uh, could have added this historical detail of night. He, he, might, he might just be trying to paint a picture of this interaction with Jesus, and so he kind of throws a historical detail in there. And yet, we know a little bit more about John and his writing style that he used imagery a lot. In fact, he, he uses night and light all throughout the Gospel of John to signify moral or spiritual darkness, like chapter 9, verse 4. And so Nicodemus could be coming to Jesus by night, maybe to keep this, this interaction a secret, but more, most likely it's referring to just the, the whole state of Nicodemus. It's describing kind of the spiritual condition of him, that he's spiritually and morally dark, even though he is religious. So I think it's, it's, it's important to understand that even though Nicodemus was the guy in society that, that would look at and say, surely this guy has the answer. Surely this guy knows all about the afterlife. Surely this guy has, all, has everything figured out. As, as respected as he was, as religious as he was, he was still searching. He was still looking for something. There was something that was kind of keeping him up at night, something that was stirring in his heart that, that led him to pursuing Jesus and this interaction about what the afterlife is all about. So he approaches Jesus maybe under the covering of night, and says to Jesus in verse 2, he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now we learn a little bit more about Nicodemus in this statement. Now let me just point out, this is one of four lines that Nicodemus has in this entire conversation. But this is the only statement that Nicodemus makes. The other three lines are all questions. So there's like something about Jesus and what he is talking about, maybe his posture that's kind of pulling Nicodemus in as Nicodemus is asking more questions and and more follow-up questions. And yet, with this one statement, we learn about where Nicodemus is spiritually. He calls Jesus a rabbi or teacher. He even validates part of Jesus' ministry as someone who, who performed miracles. He had some type of connection with God. And yet, Nicodemus still misses the foundational element of Jesus' identity as the coming promised Messiah. He misses that. He misses the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. He's close, but he's still far. See, Nicodemus would have said he, he believed in God. He would have said he believes in the Old Testament. He, he thinks Jesus is this good moral teacher. And so what, what does this mean for, for us in evangelism here? Well, I think it's important to know that in Hamilton County, in this part of the country that we live in, that there are Nicodemuses all around us. There are individuals who would say they believe in Jesus, would say that Jesus is a good moral teacher, that, that Jesus had some good things to say, and yet... We are surrounded by people who, who are missing some of the most important elements of Jesus' identity as the Son of God and what it means to follow him. And look, we, we are surrounded, we just need it. We're surrounded by religious people who are close but yet far and yet are searching. Have you noticed that? That living in Hamilton County, like, like on the outside, everybody's good, everybody's kind of pristine, they're they're keeping up with the Joneses, and yet on the inside. They are searching. That there are people here who would say that they're religious, that live in Hamilton County, and yet on the inside there is something that is gnawing at their soul, whispering to them, 
there is more. There's more to life than, than just keeping up with the Joneses. There's more to life than the American dream. And so my question for us this morning is, are, are you aware of that? Do you, do you see that in the people that you interact with, that people might be religious, but, but they're far from Jesus, that they're, they're searching for something, and, and are you engaging with them? might be thinking to yourself, well, I, I see them. I, I know that, that describes my neighbor, that describes my coworker, but I don't really know how to, how to engage with someone like that. Well, let me draw your attention to what Jesus does here in this conversation. Jesus is going to help us uh, unpack how to engage with someone who's religious and yet seeking. Look at verses 3 through 8 at Jesus' direct invitation. Now, verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you. Let me just stop there for a moment. Jesus uh, uses kind of that phrase three different times in this conversation. And and you can basically translate that in the Greek of, Hey, hey, focus. Look at me. Pay pay attention to what I'm about to say. Because what I'm about to say is very, very important. That we're starting to see Jesus use some very blunt and direct language with this religious leader. Jesus, truly, truly, I say to you, pay attention. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Jesus cuts right down to it. He skips the fluff. He he skips some of the small talk. And he invites Nicodemus into the kingdom of God and says, you need to be born again. Nicodemus has no idea what Jesus is talking about. This phrase, being born again, was was pretty unfamiliar during this time. And so Nicodemus says in verse 4, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, What is Jesus talking about here? What what does this phrase mean to be born again, and how does that impact our evangelism? I think it's important to know that the way that Jesus is using this phrase, being born again, is not necessarily the same way that you and I use this phrase, being born again. Jesus is not using this phrase as an adjective to describe what kind of Christian that you are. And that, that's, that's how we tend to use that phrase. What kind of Christian are you? Well, I'm a, I'm a born-again Christian. That's, that's not how Jesus is using this as a title to describe what kind of believer that you are. But in fact, Jesus is using this phrase to be born again to both describe how you enter the kingdom of God and how you live within the kingdom of God. That Jesus, in effect, is basically saying, look, Nicodemus, I know that you're a Pharisee. I know that you're very religious. I know that you know a lot about the Old Testament. But you cannot enter the kingdom of God by becoming more religious on your own. You cannot enter the kingdom of God by adding more head knowledge about the Old Testament. But in order for you to enter the kingdom of God, you need something outside of yourself and beyond yourself to regenerate you and give you a new birth in order to enter the kingdom of God, namely, the Spirit of God's work in the life of Nicodemus. And Jesus is saying, look, I I know you've got skills, I know you've got gifts, you've got high integrity, people know you, but you need something beyond yourself. You need to be born again through the work of God in order to enter this kingdom. 
and he's driving at kind of the lack of, of humility that Nicodemus had. Surely he's thinking, I, I'm close. I've got to be close. I'm, I'm so religious. I've got so much knowledge of the Old Testament. Like, come on, just, just let me in. Yet Jesus is saying, you need to be born again. And yet Nicodemus is not tracking with this. He, he misses this. And so in verse 5, Jesus is even more direct. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Look, Jesus is so direct. He's not sugarcoating anything. He's not saying, oh, Nicodemus, you, you are so religious. You are so respected. You know so much about the Old Testament. Let, let, let's just add a little bit more religion here, and, and, then, and then you'll be in the kingdom of God. No, he doesn't say that. In fact, Jesus demonstrates what a direct invitation to be saved actually looks like. Have you noticed, like, in, in this conversation, how direct Jesus is with a religious leader? Like, like before studying this, like, I understood, like, the necessity to be direct and to be blunt with certain people, like, maybe, like, big-time sinners or drug addicts or whatever. Like, that's when you need to be very bold and say, look, this is what it means to be saved, right? But to do that with a religious leader, a guy that with all of the society would say he's close, he's not too far. Like Jesus is making a statement here. And when he says that one needs to be born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, what does that mean? Like I, I understand like the Spirit part. Yeah, we, we need to be born of the Spirit. Like God saves us. But what does salvation have to do with water? Well, some believe that this is referring to water baptism, that in order to enter the kingdom of God to be saved, you need both the Spirit's work and uh, to be baptized. That's not my particular view. I think that would violate other passages of Scripture that, that clearly teach that you are saved through faith alone in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So what, what is this talking about with this whole water thing? Well, I think Jesus is using water symbolically here to refer to God's cleansing act in saving us. That in this passage, Jesus, and we're going to see this in just a few verses, Jesus is referring to a couple different Old Testament passages throughout this conversation with Nicodemus. And I think here specifically, Jesus is referring to the work of God in the New Covenant, and he's alluding to an Old Testament passage pointing forward to the New Covenant. The reason why I believe that is because in verse 10, Jesus gives a little jab at Nicodemus. He says, aren't you the teacher of Israel, yet you don't know what I'm talking about? And so clearly, Nicodemus should have been tracking with Jesus. He should have, should have known what Jesus was talking about because of his Old Testament knowledge. And so the question is, is there a passage in the Old Testament that talks about salvation as it relates to the water and the Spirit in the New Covenant? Well, there indeed is. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27, talks about the new covenant where God will sprinkle us clean with water. He'll cleanse us and put his spirit within us. Now, why is Jesus talking about here? Well, he's reiterating the fact that in order to be saved, in order to enter the kingdom of God, this is something that God must do. This is not something that you can earn. This is not something that you really have a role in playing and being saved. And just as the physical birth, you didn't have a role in that, same with the spiritual birth. That is God's work in you. That's what Jesus is driving at. 
Remember when, when Lila, my second, <clears throat> was born uh, just a couple of months ago? She didn't have a say in that. She didn't have any work in that. Like, like that wasn't her doing that. And, and in the same way, that physically, us spiritually, when we are saved, when we are born again, that is all God's work. And yet Nicodemus is not tracking here. Look at verse 7. Jesus says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. <clears throat> the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus is yet again saying, look, you can't control the wind. You, you can't manipulate the wind. You can't uh, figure that out quite yet, but you can see the effects of wind. And so in the same way, you, you can't control and manipulate the Spirit of God in salvation, but yet you can see the effects of His work. You can see when He does save somebody. You can see when He does give new birth in the regeneration of salvation. Now, Jesus is not trying to confuse Nicodemus here. And as direct as Jesus is being, I want to point out the fact that Jesus is graciously unsettling Nicodemus here. That all throughout this conversation, he is being direct. He's throwing some jabs at him, trying to unsettle Nicodemus. Nicodemus. Now, why? Why did Jesus do that? Well, I think one of the big reasons why Jesus is unsettling Nicodemus is so that Nicodemus would not have a false assurance of his eternal position. I think Jesus is unsettling Nicodemus to avoid Nicodemus walking away from this conversation with Jesus, thinking to himself, I'm in. I'm good. I've been religious most of my life. I know a lot about the Old Testament. I just had this interaction with Jesus. And so I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm in the kingdom of God. I think Jesus is unsettling him. He's being so direct in order to create not a false assurance of his, of his, of his eternal destiny. And I think this is one of the takeaways for us, not only in this morning's passage, but all throughout this sermon series, is we need to learn the skill of direct graciousness when we're talking about evangelism and sharing the gospel. Jesus beautifully demonstrates that in this conversation where he is blunt when he needs to be and he is direct when he needs to be. And what I mean by a direct graciousness is when we're sharing the gospel, not just highlighting the benefits of the gospel, but also talking about the gospel itself. That, that's the challenge like for me personally. Like when I'm sharing the gospel with somebody, I love talking about eternal life and heaven and how beautiful Jesus is, and how satisfying Jesus is. But man, talking about the gospel itself, and being clear and convictional on the fact that you're a sinner, you can't save yourself, that if you don't believe in this, this is what's going to happen, like that's a, that's a little bit harder for me to do, to be both gracious and yet convictional. And so one aspect that we need to apply when we're sharing the gospel is that the gospel is only good news when we first share the bad news, we first talk about the fact that you can't save yourself, that you, that you are a sinner, and then we get to the good news of what Jesus has done. And so understanding this skill of direct graciousness and, and kind of imitating what Jesus has done is a necessity if we want to grow in being faithful stewards of the gospel. So how do you do that? How do you grow in being direct and yet gracious? Well, Three things I want to give us this morning. Three 
three brief things just to keep in mind about understanding how to be direct. Number one, I think in order to be direct, we need to study and know the person that we're talking to. You got to know where, where they are spiritually. You got to know where they're coming from. You got to be able to know, do, do they have a church background? Do, do they know anything about uh, Jesus? And almost my go-to move now is I'm talking to people and I'm trying to learn more about them and, and they're not receiving the gospel. I'll, I'll, I'll tend to ask them, hey, tell me about the Jesus that you're not believing in. Tell me about the Jesus that, that doesn't jive with you right now. And they, and they answer, and, and more often than not, my response is, yeah, I don't, I don't believe in that Jesus either. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. So, so let's start with, with who Jesus actually is, and we go from there. But if I just assume where they are spiritually without studying and getting to know where they are spiritually, I'm going to miss my moment of being direct when I need to be direct. Number two, the second thing that can help us be more direct is ask good questions. Ask specific questions that both shows compassion and concern for them, but also gives you insight of where they are on their spiritual journey. Ask questions like, hey, tell me about what you know about Jesus. What do you know about the gospel? Or what's, what's your church history been like? What's, what's, what's been your past as it relates to your religious experience? Asking really specific questions that allows them to kind of open up and talk about where they are spiritually can also allow you to be more direct. And then the third thing is, 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 to, be, uh, is to be direct, is, is actually call them to believe and follow Jesus. And I know that makes us a little nervous, but to be direct when we need to be direct, we need to call them to believe and to follow Jesus. We're not just kind of floating out there, these are good ideas to believe. We actually need to, hey, will you follow Jesus? Will you put your faith in Christ and turn from your sins? And getting to that, that point, I think, is a necessity in growing and becoming better evangelists. So how are you doing in your own life in evangelism of being direct and yet gracious? Like when was the last time that you actually called someone to believe and follow Jesus and not just talk about the benefits of the gospel? See, as pro as I am for kind of the, the relational evangelism method, I think if we were really honest, our, our evangelism is probably more relational than evangelism. Like I think most of our relationships were hesitant to actually get to the gospel. So the relational evangelism is more about the friendship, and, and we, we hardly ever get to the gospel. And so I, I just want to caution us as we uh, kind of embark on growing and, and sharing about the good news of Jesus, let's get to the gospel, get to the best part, get to Jesus, be direct, ask good questions, and be gracious. Well, number three, in this passage, the third thing I want to point out is Nicodemus's barrier, his chief barrier. Now, when you look at this conversation that Jesus has with him, I think Jesus' direct graciousness kind of exposes Nicodemus's chief barrier. Sometimes when we're talking to people about the gospel, it's like, man, what, what is standing in the way here? Like, what, what is their barrier? And, and you can kind of guess, and uh, part of the reason of being a little bit more direct is that exposes what's keeping them from believing in Jesus. <clears throat> now, verse 9, I think it sheds some insight on where <clears throat> Nicodemus actually is. 
Nicodemus asked the question to Jesus, how can these things be? See, even in that question, we still see some doubting in Nicodemus, that he's still missing, he's still not believing. And then you get to verses 10 through 15, and, and this is Jesus talking here, but even what Jesus says here, it makes us believe that Nicodemus still is struggling with unbelief. Jesus says in verse 10, <clears throat> Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, what I think Jesus is doing here in these verses is he's connecting Nicodemus's unbelief with the unbelief of the nation of Israel. And I think he's doing that specifically alluding to Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. That passage would have been a passage that Nicodemus knew about because he was a Pharisee, he was a teacher of the Old Testament. And so in verse 14, Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man, referring to himself, be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, Numbers 21 is that passage about, uh, about the people of Israel who were complaining to God and to Moses. They're saying, man, let's go back to Egypt. That's where we had food and water and shelter and protection. Like, we're dying out here in the wilderness. And so because of their complaining, God sends some serpents. He sends some snakes, and they start biting some of the people of, of Israel. And of course, some people die. And so some of the people of Israel go to Moses, and they go to God, and they say, have mercy on us. Like, have grace on us. And so what does God do? God tells Moses take a serpent, put it on a pole, and lift it up. And whoever looks to that serpent, they will not perish, but they will live. Now, obviously, that was a type pointing forward to Jesus. And Jesus is picking up on that motif here, saying that in the same way that the people of Israel were saved by looking at this serpent on the pole, in the same way, those that look to me, who, who will be lifted up on the cross for salvation, will be saved and will not perish. See, this is something that, that Nicodemus should have known about and should have known about the mission of Jesus. And yet, Nicodemus is still not tracking. He's still not believing that this really is the Messiah, the Son of God. So as I was kind of looking at this conversation, just diving into this, I had the question of, okay, Nicodemus is struggling throughout this conversation. Like, he's just not really tracking with him. He's got this, this unbelief. And so, what does Jesus do here with someone who's not believing in what he is saying? Like, I come across that question all the time. Like, like okay, I'm sharing the gospel with somebody, and, and they just flat out say, I, I don't believe that. Or, that's good for you, but I believe in something else. Or, or they're, just, they're just not tracking with me. Like, like, what do we do when we're sharing the gospel and they're not believing? Do we just walk away and say, well, I planted a seed. I'm going to move on to other people? Well, what does Jesus do here? Oh, I think Jesus does two things that we need to understand. That when someone's not 
receiving the gospel, we look to Jesus' model here, that Jesus models two things, both a sense of urgency and Jesus has the long view here, meaning that Jesus understands that most people are in process, that most people, it, it takes a couple conversations for them to believe and to follow Jesus. See, one of the things that, that we learn in this conversation and really throughout John's gospel is that Nicodemus is on this journey of faith. That chapter 2, verse 23, just a couple verses before our passage, we learn where it says that now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Now that's not talking about Nicodemus yet. Nicodemus is still questioning. He's still searching. He's still wrestling, not yet believing. And it's not until chapter 19 verses 39 and 40, that Nicodemus perhaps becomes a follower of Jesus. It says in chapter 19, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And this is after Jesus died. It says, so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in the linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And so we learn from, from those verses that, that even though Nicodemus was searching, he most likely comes to the end here in chapter 19 and identifies with Jesus in perhaps a saving way. Isn't it interesting that it took chapter, from chapter 3 all the way to chapter 19 for Nicodemus to kind of connect the dots? Oh, that's what Jesus was talking about. Oh, that's what Jesus was referring to, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, what does that mean for us practically? What well, means that for most of the people that we talk to, they're in process. Like they're in a journey of their own. That, that yes, we need to have urgency that God can save anybody in a moment's notice. God can save anybody in the first conversation. But statistically speaking, someone needs to hear the gospel on average seven times before they actually receive it and follow Jesus. Seven times on average before they actually understand and before God kind of opens their eyes on average before they become a Christian. And so what does that mean for us? That means that we need to have that urgency, but we also need to be faithful with one conversation at a time, having the long view in mind that what God is doing is completely sovereign and it's part of his plan and part of his purpose. And so, what does that mean for us this morning? Well, let me just ask you this. Who, who in your life that has not yet believed is waiting for you just to remain faithful and to keep sharing? Who in your life has maybe heard the gospel three, four, five times, and yet they need you to remain faithful and share the gospel for the fourth, for the fifth, for the sixth, for the seventh time before they become saved? Who is it in your life that you need to have more of the long view in mind? Not, not a one and done, but to stay faithful in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look, we pray, we, we are dedicated to making Jesus not only convincing, but also compelling. But we understand that it is God and God alone who opens blind eyes and removes that barrier of unbelief. And our job is to be faithful. Our job is to be faithful with one conversation at a time. And we see that here even with Jesus. Now, the fourth section here 
is about the gospel hope. And now as we see Jesus kind of, he's still persisting, he's still direct in this conversation with Nicodemus, that even though he's not believing, he still remains in this conversation and he still is trying to reach Nicodemus. Look with me at verses 16 and 17. Very popular verses here. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So here we see very clearly the the gospel hope that Jesus presents to Nicodemus. Jesus grounds his mission in the love of God, that the love of God was motivating Jesus, and really the consequence of God's love was to send Jesus to die for the sins of the world. Now, I love these verses, and, but these verses are, it's really easy just to make these verses into a cliche. These are so popular that, oh yeah, I, I know what that means. I've heard that a million times. So looking at these verses, maybe for just in, fresh, in a fresh way this morning, let me point out three things that we learn about God's love. The first thing is we see the intensity of God's love. It says, for God so loved the world. It's not just that God loved the world. God emphatically, with an intensity, loves the world. Number two, we see the sacrificial nature of God's love. That he so loved the world that he did what? He gave up his only son. He sacrificed his only son. And then number three, we see the purpose of his love. That He did all of this. He loves us in order to save us, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let me ask you this question. As you're sharing the gospel with people, are you filled with such love for God that the person that you're talking to gets a glimpse of what God's love is all about? Are you so filled with with verses 16 and 17 that it's just overflowing out of you, that this person gets a small glimmer of what God's love is all about. Or, as you share the gospel, is it cold? Is it more of kind of a formal presentation? Or, does God's love just ooze out of you as you share the hope for their salvation? God love, I love these verses. I mean, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes, it doesn't say, for whoever is good enough. It doesn't say, for whoever has perfect church attendance. It doesn't say for whoever performs good works will be saved. No, it says whoever believes in Jesus. Now you got to know that 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 message there is extremely offensive. The the culture that we live in saying to somebody, hey, God loves you and he loves you so much that he sent Jesus to die for your sins because you cannot save yourself. You tell that to an American, you, you can't do something like that's offensive. That's not going to be received well. So, so it demands and necessitates a direct graciousness of being both gracious and yet convictional, of saying, look, you cannot save yourself. It is God who saves you through the person and work of Jesus. So this morning, you might be here today, and do, do you know Jesus today? Not do you know Jesus in the sense that Nicodemus knew Jesus, where you have head knowledge, but do you personally know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you given your life to him in full trust and full faith, trusting in Jesus 
and Jesus alone for eternal life. Have you made that decision? See, it says, for whoever believes in him, any, all who believe in Jesus can be saved. That includes you this morning. Is it, is it you today? That maybe you're here, maybe for the first time, maybe you've been here a hundred times, and, and you're this religious seeker yourself. Maybe you are Nicodemus, and yet you have not given your life to Jesus. Today could be the day. And I just want to encourage you, if you want to learn more about what that means to, to follow Jesus, to give your faith uh, to Jesus, I'll be down here in the front. would love to talk about what God has done for you in Christ. Look, church family, as we kind of embark on this sermon series, my, my prayer is that verses 16 and 17 just get into our bones. At verses 16 and 17, the fact that God loves me, that that would be so rooted in our souls and in our hearts that it overflows and we talk about this love with people who desperately need it. Don't you want that in your life? Don't you want to be a person who is not engaged in evangelism out of guilt or fear or anxiety, but you're engaged in evangelism out of love for God? Because this is true, because you have the hope of the world in the gospel, how can we keep that to ourselves? Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the saving work of Jesus Christ. We thank you that he did not leave us to ourselves, but he came and he was the substitutionary atonement on the cross for us. God, I pray that the fact that you love us, that's unchanging. I pray that that would motivate us to engage in evangelism. God, would you protect us from fear, from guilt, from anxiety, from indifference? Help us to be motivated by a love for you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.